Good day and welcome to the University of Minnesota Extension uh, episode of University of Minnesota CropCast. I'm one of your hosts, Dave Nikolai with University of Minnesota. I'm an Extension educator in field crops. My co-host, who's finally back in the chair here, is uh, Dr. Seth Nave, University of Minnesota Extension soybean specialist. And, and Seth, we gave you uh, last week off, but I, I hopefully you came back recharged and, and ready to go. Is shaming me for going on vacation. That's so um, so American or so Midwestern or so Minnesotan. I don't know what it is, but but you'll, you'll get over it. You'll get over it. Uh, someday I'm going to get caught back up. So no good deed goes unpunished. I left and relaxed for a week, and now I have a pile of work to do. But that's that's how it goes. Well, you know, we got a little bit of rain well, in some places in Minnesota, and some places quite a bit of rain this last year. But again. Uh, this last week, uh, Seth, it's highly variable. I mean, when you go around the state of Minnesota, uh, this last week, you know, some places in the Owatonna area, an inch, uh, some places down towards the Mankato area, uh, several inches, and other places, hardly anything at all. So, um, but the crop is still green and, and growing. I, I had a chance to go to um, univers- to Minnesota Farm, Farm Fest last year week, I should say, with the University of Minnesota. Uh, we had a, a tent and so forth out there, but I noticed even in the Redwood Falls area, uh, a lot of the grass was just brown from the get-go, uh, which is indicative of the fact that, you know, we're probably low on, on soil moisture. So I think the bottom line is there's still a lot of variability out there. Well, variability and we're behind. So I think that's two things. I think uh, statewide we're behind. And then this this question that you raise, it's really important, is the fact that this time of year we just get these kind of popcorn showers or, or in some cases these trailing kind of thunderstorms that really drop a lot of rain in some places and, and others not so much. So we, we're really guilty um, at the university and in the government. And, you know, a lot of people are really guilty of, you know, talking broadly about these things because, you know, our, our main clientele is farmers and individual farmers can be really hurting or, you know, they have neighbors that have had plenty of rainfall. So it's, it's uh, we don't want to stereotype and group everybody, but I guess I would say that, um, you know, it seems like we've had a little bit of a shift in the pattern. So uh, where we do, uh, where we have had rain, that seemed the crop looks really, really, really good. And if this continues, I mean, we could have a quite a good crop, even though things were really behind for a long time this year. I know some of the national marketers who were at FarmFest were talking about uh, 173, 177, 180 bushels per acre on, on field corn, but that's, you know, obviously not just Minnesota, that's, it's nationwide. Uh, so, and we're still in the, in the ballpark, but it was interesting enough, they didn't really want to speculate about the soybean crop in terms of that, because as uh, you well know, uh, in the month of August, there can be a lot of changes, right? Yeah, it's, you know, it's that old adage about August beans, um, you know, August makes the beans is really true. And I mean, I would I would push that into mid-August to um, mid-September in most cases because I think that's really even more critical. But uh, we're we're at the right time um, to get the rainfall where it does does happen, and and uh, it it's done interesting things for us. We see weird stuff, and we're going to talk pathology in a little bit. But uh, I got some photos for from today from a consultant that found some IDC in some areas that hadn't had IDC all year. Uh, it's been dry all year in that particular area. Things looked actually good, but the beans were short. And then all of a sudden they get a couple inches of rain and now they have IDC. So 
it's a very confounding problem, this IDC thing. And uh, I feel I feel bad for plant pathologists because they deal with all this biology related to disease. But boy, IDC is really a gnarly one. It's it's tough, tough to to figure out and predict. And and uh, therefore, it's really hard to to manage or to do research on. Well, you know, uh, one of the things that was talked about at FarmFest is uh, con- management of soybean aphid and getting out into these fields and, and, and looking around and spending a little bit more time. And I, I think that's really a good idea, not just from the standpoint of uh, integrated pest management on, uh, say, for example, soybean aphids, but also on disease. And uh, maybe you want to talk uh, with the folks here about our special guests when we talk about some of these diseases and in, in soybeans, but the bottom line is, uh, it, it's hard to see things at uh, 60 miles an hour going down the road. Uh, I believe you actually have to get out of that pickup and, and look around and, and make those uh, make those assessments. So some places uh, rain, and sometimes you think, well, it's been pretty dry, and uh, I'm sure we won't have a problem, but that's not necessarily the case. So uh, tell us who we have with us today. That was a gentle hint to keep things going here, I that guess. Yes. Yeah, so we have um, we have Megan McCahey. McCahey? McCahey? Okay. McCahey, yep. Okay, perfect. <laughs> she, cor- I knew she'd correct me <laughs> if I kept going long enough. And she's an assistant professor here in um, in St. Paul at the University of Minnesota with, in the Department of Plant Pathology. And she has a r- new position, I would say. And uh, I th- was really excited to get her in the docket uh, for our uh, discussion today on CropCast because She's doing a lot of really cool things in a lot of different crops and a lot of different diseases. And, and it's, it's a bit of a different model than the old days when we, we were very either crop-centric or disease-centric in, in agronomy or in plant pathology. So um, I'm really uh, excited to have you here today. So thanks for coming in. Great. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's good to be on. Well, let's start a little bit. We always, with some of our guests and, and situations and that are probably new to this and in, a, in the podcast and CropCast, tell us a little bit about your background. Um, you don't have to go back to the way olden days, but a little bit about your academic training, um, uh, where maybe you're coming from in terms of uh, some of your schooling and then how you ended up here at the University of Minnesota. Sure. Yeah, I'd be happy to. So I'm actually from um, Arkansas originally, which is where I did my undergraduate degree. And I became interested in agriculture as a way to apply my interest in biology to, to society and to have a societal impact. So after that, I spent some time in South Africa working with um, farmers there who grow maize and looking at foliar and um, stem diseases of, of, of corn um, in breeding trials throughout the country. Um, and that really solidified my interest in doing translational research. So doing research that ultimately would have an impact um, in fields and to growers. And so from from there, I went, um, oh, and at, during that time, I was a master's student at the University of California, Davis. So from there, I went on to Wisconsin after talking with Damon Smith, who's an extension um, professor there working with diseases of um, various field crops. Um, I did my Ph.D. on the management of sclerotinia, which causes a a disease called white mold using genetic strategies um, and then carried on to my postdoc at UC Davis. So I went back to California after that. And so when you were at California, then you're aware of a position that came open here in Minnesota, I take it? That's right. Yeah. So while I was at California, um, 
I learned about this position at Minnesota, and it just seemed like a great fit. It was going to be working with soil-borne fungi that cause plant diseases. And throughout my master's and my PhD and my postdoc, I was working with soil-borne diseases. Um, and it was going to be a position that that was translational, that would be um, in part supported by growers through a GREET and ultimately would be working with agricultural industries here in Minnesota. So I was pretty excited to see that advertised. Now, for some of the, us uh, older people in the audience, we remember other you know professors here at the University of Minnesota. For some people, you might remember uh, Dr. Jim Curley. Right, yeah. And even going back to Dr. Dave McDonald and other types of folks that were involved with that. So they've been in, they were involved with of some of this research, but in a similar vein, but they've done other types of things in Phytophthora, um, uh, et, et cetera. So the bottom line is there was there were big shoes to fill. Right. Yeah, that's true. And, and fortunately, um, you know, Dr. Jim Curley, we were able to overlap and he was very helpful in terms of providing, you know, pathogen isolates and teaching materials for for the course that he taught that I would eventually take over. Um, and other faculty members in the department have been very supportive. So as a new faculty member, um, I really appreciate the institutional knowledge here at the University of Minnesota and the willingness of those professors to, to share that knowledge with me. So this, it, might, this might be a little bit nerdy and academic <laughs> uh, of me, but I want to point out something that's kind of interesting that just occurred to me is that um, my first research projects here in the university, I'm turning it back to me, sorry. Um, the first research projects here at the University of Minnesota, I worked with Jim Curley, and it was on sclerotinia management in soybean. And Jim Curley came out of Greg, Craig Grau's right. lab in Wisconsin. So he brought this knowledge of uh, white mold and sclerotinia from Wisconsin to to Minnesota, and then I worked with him 20 years ago, and and now you're following uh, a different, uh, but but uh, analogous or parallel path. So I think that's that's it's kind of a nice nerdy uh, academic uh, question or uh, uh, thought here that we've got going. So is your position? Can you talk a little bit more about it? Is a research teaching? Is there an extension component? What kind of split do you have amongst all of these? Yeah, so it is a 50% research, 50% teaching position, um, but there is an expectation in part because it's funded by AGREET that I do research that ultimately has an impact on the agricultural industries here in Minnesota. So I kind of get to do the best of, of both worlds or all worlds, I suppose. Um, you know, my research ultimately impacts growers. I do attend field days. I do attend um, small you know, I, I do attend prairie grains, um, so I get to interact with growers a lot, and I feel like that's really important for developing research questions and for doing research that that's applicable and meaningful. Um, so, so I do appreciate that facet of of the research program that we're developing, um, and then yeah, I, I also teach. So I teach an introductory plant pathology course for students who are not biology majors, many of them, um, I'm sure when they enroll in the course, don't don't really have a good idea of what plant pathology is, maybe haven't stepped foot in, in, in a, um, a at a farm or in a, in a field. And so um, it's really fun to see those light bulbs go off and to teach them about the importance of, of plant pathology. Um, yeah, so, and, and I teach other courses as well. Oh, great. Yeah. You know, one of the things we were talking about before we started off air was, in situations where you work with not only, you know, obviously people like uh, Seth here, 
but uh, also uh, Dean Melvick, who is in plant pathology and extension, and uh, he has a big component as a program leader in there. But also Aaron Lorenz, our, our soybean breeder, maybe mention some of the things. How does that work back and forth with, uh, with Aaron and soybean breeding, and what are some of the things you hope to bring to the forefront here? Right. So, um, you know, I mentioned that during my PhD studies, I was interested in genetic strategies to control white mold, to better manage white mold. So I knew that Aaron was somebody who I would really like to work with when I got to the university. And um, fortunately, we've been able to get support through the Minnesota Soybean Research and Promotion Council to do collaborative work um, that started pretty soon after after I joined UMN. So one of these projects is, you know, Aaron's really interested in looking at the question of, of plant architecture and soybean shape and how that interacts with light um, and with photosynthesis. And light is really important for white mold development as well. Um, so in order for the de- disease to occur, there's a small mushroom produced called an apothecium, and that mushroom is only produced under really specific light conditions. Um, so we've been able to work with the hundreds of lines in Aaron's architecture panels that he has out in the field to look at how those different plant shapes interact with light getting to the ground, and therefore potentially the development of these mushrooms and then disease. Um, so that's been a really neat project to kind of piggyback off of and to expand um, into questions related to to plant pathology and to disease development. Um, We're also working to collect isolates of sclerotinia so that we can um, have a panel that can be used because these different isolates have differing levels of their ability to cause disease in the plant or what we call aggressiveness. So we're trying to find a panel that um, could be a tool that breeders could use in order to have an understanding of kind of a, a general plant response to sclerotinia using these different different isolates. Um, so it's been great to, to partner with Aaron in order to answer questions that we're interested in and also to, um, to provide, you know, tools that breeders can use in the future. You know, one of the tools that I'm on the, uh, on the applied side and, and we think about some of these uh, forecasting tools, and, they, mm-hmm. and you have some time in, in Wisconsin and, and so on. Uh, it's you know, predicted you know, a little bit, you know, based upon that weather, that moisture, right, right, at, right at the time of, of, of blooming on the soybeans. And it's, it's one of the things that's very difficult for people to assess and then to say, well, I've used a, a fungicide application, but it, you know, it has to be timed just right, you know, in, in, in terms of that. Um, are you thinking about you might be involved in some of these other apps or forecasting tools down the, down the road because uh, it's, it's been quite devastating in some areas in some years, but not always consistent in Minnesota. Yeah, that's right. You know, the development of white mold is really moisture and temperature dependent. Also, we start to see it um, crop up whenever we have about 50% canopy closure. So the alignment of the, the, the fungal fruiting body, that mushroom I was talking about, the apothecium with flowering, you know, that all has to be taken into consideration. And um, Damon Smith at the University of Wisconsin has developed an app called Sporecaster, which helps to predict when those mushrooms will occur and whether or not growers might want to spray. Um, and yeah, I'd be really interested in in further validating that here in Minnesota, just to see what the efficacy of that that app is here in the state of Minnesota. And also, um, you know, thinking of other questions that are relevant to growers, such as, you know, in irrigated systems, how how accurate is this app? And um, in addition to soybean, 
can we use maybe a, a this this app with dry bean or other closely you know other other crops that that um, that are susceptible to white mold and there's a long list of those crops that are susceptible to white mold so yeah I think forecasting is a really important question it is something that I'm interested in in looking at into the future so I have lots of questions but um, you know I guess on the same theme so this uh, you're I think Dave was hitting on this classic uh, disease triangle that we're mm-hmm. that we like to talk about with with plant pathology, and so uh, I think that's the the environmental side that's driving those models, that's giving information. So it sounds like you're really interested. Uh, your research is is mostly interested on the genetic side and and from kind of those isolates and the differences and how how virulent those are on different um, different. Uh, soybeans and then the background on those various soybeans or or other crop plants. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. So I think the genetics is one aspect of it, um, but then also, you know, environmental or abiotic interactions, that other portion of the disease triangle with our questions related to how light might interact with the development of these mushrooms and, and how we might be able to alter plant architecture or combine plant architecture with genetic resistance to, to be able to, you know, improve our protection against white mold. That's certainly something that, that I'm interested in. So yeah, I guess we have a few different, we have a few different um, umbrella questions related to white mold management that we're pursuing, but certainly genetic resistance and then um, environmental um, plant interactions are, 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 two umbrellas that we're working with at this point. Yeah. Well, it's, it makes a lot of sense to me just because being an old timer, I mean, we, um, we've heard of a lot of people doing research on some, you know, and you obviously know a lot of about these single gene resistances in plants Mm -hmm. and and how much hope that we've put into some of those kinds of factors. And, And oftentimes we as researchers, and then we pass that information on to farmers, this kind of false hope that, they can do this one thing that will solve all their problems, uh, but we all know that the biology is much more complex out there, and and that it's really to really have an impact, we're going to have to take a multi-tactic approach on these things. And so that's really really great that you're looking at it from multiple different ways. Yeah, and I, I think an example of of some of that you know breakdown in terms of genetic resistance can be seen with. Phytophthora stem and root rot, where we've been deploying um, resistance genes in the field that are really effective. But if we have different races of the oomycete or of the the pathogen in the field that don't correspond to um, those resistance genes, then yeah, we're not going to have we're not going to have effective resistance and control of the disease. And so that's something else that we as a lab are are looking into is just figuring out what are the pathogen populations, what are the pathogen races of of Phytophthora soje, um, you know, in grower fields throughout the state of Minnesota, so that we can inform breeders um, to you know better deploy these resistance genes. So yes, looking at complementary strategies, but also looking at at current management techniques um, to see what the effectiveness of, of those techniques. I haven't are. kept up on this very well, but mm-hmm. I've been hearing some whispers around that, that we've had some real breakdowns in some of, well, some people would consider it a breakdown. They're finding um, a lot of phytophthora in some fields of soybeans that have some of the better 
resistance packages this year? And uh, have you heard anything like this? Is this, or is this just something you'd expect and it's, this happens every year or maybe I'm just following the wrong tweeters or something. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. So we're overdue for a survey, I'd say in the state of Minnesota, it's been about 10 years since we've looked at how the um, populations or the races of Phytophthora soja in the field compare to the resistance genes that are in current soybean cultivars that are being deployed. But what we found from surrounding states, um, you know, is that our most commonly deployed resistance or RPS genes for Phytophthora um, are 1A, C, and K. And unfortunately, in a survey that was conducted in Nebraska and one other state, um, they found that 70% of the isolates that they were collected were actually virulent. They were able to cause disease on plants that had these resistance genes. So, um, you know, due to how close we are, um, I and, and the, the time that has lapsed since the last survey of these um, of these these races, I think that there's a good chance, yeah, that our, our current resistance toolkit is not is not adequate. Well, based on your preliminary research, do you think there's some of the similar things going on in terms of of uh, the genetics and resistance and different isolates in terms of the, on the sclerotinia and the white mold side? You know, are we as commercial companies predominate on, on the soybean as they quote, try to develop, which is difficult, you know, in the field research, are we going to run into the same thing in terms of what we think are good varieties, but down the road having difficulty uh, with, you know, the different genetics of the, uh, of the isolates themselves? Yeah, that's a good question. So I do think that it's really important to, you know, monitor monitor over time the effectiveness of resistant varieties um, to the different population and populations of fungi that we have in the field. But, um, you know, one thing about resistance to sclerotinia is it is what is called um, quantitative resistance. So there are multiple genes that that um, allow for the plant to be resistant in the field. Um, and so while resistance may not be as strong or as effective, it can help to preserve yields. Um, and it also means that because there are multiple genes allowing for this resistance to occur in the field, it's more difficult for the pathogen to overcome that resistance. Whereas, um, you know, the most effective form of resistance to Phytophthora stem and root rot is the single gene strong resistance. And so um, I do think it's important to monitor resistance to sclerotinia in the field, but I think our, our, our chances of just losing that completely are not as high as they are with Phytophthora. And I also think that, you know, it's important to look at not just single gene resistance to Phytophthora, but consider multi-gene resistance to, to that pathogen as well. Well, yeah. I, I certainly think you're on the right track when you talk about doing the surveys. Mm -hmm. um, I, I don't want to speak too loud, but I think I was involved in one of those other surveys. It sounds like at least I've been around 10 mm -hmm. years or longer, almost as long as you, Seth. But, uh, it, but the bottom line is uh, it would be good to do it. And from not only, obviously, from a sclerotinia standpoint, but from a Phytophthora uh, standpoint as well. Right. And I, I can use this as an opportunity to pitch that we do accept disease plants and 
diseased, you know, soils from fields that you know have phytophthora problems. Um, sclerotia, if you find those um, kind of, we like to say rat turd shaped <laughs> fungal resting structures in your soybeans or in your combine, um, we'd be happy to, to collect those, to add them to our isolate collection, to add soil samples to our surveys. So, um, you know, feel free to, to send me an email. Um, it's listed on my, my faculty webpage at the U and I would be, I'd be happy to, to give you an address to send those in. That's, that's a good, that's a good plug. And, um, um, that's a great project and it's, it's, uh, you know, we talk about participatory science or citizen science and, and farmers really have a lot to gain by engaging with the university, but uh, it's a real challenge to get farmers to, 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 uh, help out with these things because they're so challenged by other things going on. And it's, a, there's a lot, uh, they, they have too many, too many people asking for too many things right. and it's very challenging, but these, these are the kind of things that we really need help with. So, Along those same lines, you mentioned that you were out looking for apothecia. Mm -hmm. Can farmers go out and look for apothecia now? And will that be informative of them, whether they might have white mold and what other fungi are lookalikes in the field to uh, the, 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 this, this fruiting body for, the, uh, for, um, for white mold? Yeah, that's a great question. So um, we did actually see an apothecium out in our research um, plot last week, but our soybean um, plants, our lines that are in that trial are pretty much done flowering and they're getting close to being done flowering. So the most important risk window for infection by sclerotinia is early flowering. So between R1 and R3. So if you were to see an apothecium now in the field, if you were to see that mushroom out in the field, um, it's not as likely to impact your crop if, if you know, you've already passed those flowering stages as many folks have here in the state. Um, but certainly, you know, next season, if you're if you're worried about white mold, if you have a field with a history of white mold, it's really important to get out there at early flowering. And if you see those fruiting bodies, that is a sign um, that you may have you may have trouble coming in terms of white mold. So um, in terms of thinking about your chemical management, that's an important, a critical time period. Using that Sporecaster app can also help when thinking about your row spacing, your canopy conditions, um, and there are a variety of fungicides that can assist with white mold control. Um, you know, Endura is one that, that Damon talks about a lot, other, other bosculate fungicides. You know, we talk about crop rotation, and that's the difficulty on, on sclerotinia, even uh, in a corn soybean, uh, which some people say that isn't a true rotation in terms of because no, it's no third crop per se, but, uh, you know, based upon your work in Wisconsin and so forth, uh, uh, if you have a serious situation with it, you know, and if it's corn and soybeans, very likely, I mean, this can, can continue in that particular field. Right, yeah. So those sclerotia, those resting structures, they can persist for, you know, up to five years. Um, so while you are not likely to eliminate those sclerotia with crop rotation, you can knock down the number of sclerotia that are going to be able to, to form those fruiting bodies um, through rotation. So ro rotating into, into some, you know, sort of grass crop. Um, so small grains might be an option to help to, to better manage those, those sclerotia. You mentioned it a little bit earlier. Besides soybeans, what are some other crops in Minnesota that you're keeping a watch on? I imagine sunflowers is obviously oh, yeah. one of those, but 
Mm-hmm. Are there others? Yeah. So sunflower is a crop that that is very susceptible to white mold. Um, it also is susceptible to a disease called Phomopsis. Um, and you know, we we do have a chemical control study working with others in the Dakotas and Nebraska for optimizing chemical control of Phomopsis. Um, canola is another crop that is really susceptible to white mold. There are a variety of vegetable crops that are susceptible to white mold. Um, dry bean. So so unfortunately, it has a really wide host range. This is also why disease um, management is an important aspect of white mold control, because if you have um, dicot weeds in the field, those can also be infected by the pathogen and can form sclerotia that re-enter the soil. So weed control is another aspect of white mold management. I think I'm glad you mentioned dry beans because we do have a large segment of that, especially in west central Minnesota mm-hmm. and, and in western Minnesota. Maybe sunflowers have diminished somewhat in acreage, obviously, over the last uh, you know decade or so. But you know, nonetheless, um, you know, the the edible beans, and, and that's that's a difficulty. Yeah, and we do act, we have a project that'll be starting up this fall, looking at the impact of cover crops on white mold. So whether they act as a as a bridge, or you know, maybe the change that they they can help over time to induce in soil microbial communities might be able to help to break down those sclerotia. So we have a lot of questions as to how cover crops might interact with with sclerotinia and with white mold development in dry bean and soybean and other crops. So we do have some some work going on in, in dry bean. That's a good, I mean, that's um, that's a kind of a soft spot for me as I, I I tend to think one of our big challenges, and maybe that's the foundation of your your position as a soil-borne plant pathologist, is that, you know, in Minnesota, I one of my biggest, or my thought of one of our biggest challenges is that we produce a crop basically from the time when the soil thaws out in the spring until it freezes in the fall. We've got a single crop in many cases, whether that's corn or soybean or sunflower, that entire time, and we don't have a lot of time for additional biology biology to go on out in the field. So um, maybe these cover crops is is a way to induce or add um, uh, a little bit more uh, activity in there, and maybe that that could really help us out in some ways. Yeah, yeah, we're curious about that. So we'll be burying sclerotia in small mesh bags and digging them up after the addition of cover crops to look at at whether they have degraded and whether or not they're able to to produce um, living fungal material called mycelia, which eventually can cause disease. So we're we're excited to get started with that work. Well, the the um, Department of Plant Pathology also houses on the first floor a a, a plant pathology diagnostic lab or disease mm-hmm. lab and so forth. And now we're getting to that time of the year when we when we started here. We talked a little bit about you know getting out of the truck and walking those fields and so forth. Um, you know, some areas are irrigated. Some areas have had some recent rainfall. So um, if, if they are uh, concerned or suspicious about white mold, what are some of the symptoms, you know, or signs, I should say, here uh, from the standpoint? And uh, there's still an opportunity to get some of that diagnosed, at least to plan forward for upcoming years. Yeah, so, so maybe one of the only good aspects of white mold is that it does have some some pretty identifiable signs and symptoms. Um, so white mold, typically the symptoms, you can start to see them anywhere between R1 and R6 when you're getting those full pods. Um, and the the sign or the, the signs are these white fluffy um, you know fungal threads called mycelia that will form 
on the stem of the soybean plant. And then that um, tissue as it dries up will form sclerotia, which are these dark resting structures that kind of look like a raisin or or a, a rat or a mouse dropping, and they'll fill the stem of the soybean plant. So if you see bleach lesions on the stem of the plant, which means, um, you know, potentially you had mycelia there and they dried down, you could open up the stem of the plant and you would be able to see those sclerotia inside the stem, possibly on the outside of the stem, on that lesion, and even in the pods. So looking for those mycelia and sclerotia um, are, are good indicators of, of white mold. Um, and then the symptoms, again, are those bleached lesions on the stem. So they'll start at a flower. The fungus infects at a flower. It'll progress down the petiole to the main stem and then expand from there. It can also cause issues with lodging as that stem tissue is, is hollowed out. Um, so if you, have, if you have patches in your field, brown patches, um, you know, getting in there, breaking open stems, looking at whether or not you have sclerotia could be really useful. The disease clinic here on the UMN campus can also take disease samples and and give you a diagnosis of of that. Um, But yeah, definitely now is is a time you can scout and that'll help you know the history of your field. It might help you know if if you have a rotational opportunity for next year you can take advantage of or if you need to be prepared for chemical control um, during flowering next year. It's, It's good to be aware of that. Yeah, it's it's my this is my you struck a nerve with me is that farmers are really uh, aggressive about taking on disease and challenges in their fields. And they they really search really hard to find um, solutions from their from their um, seed dealer, from their chemical dealers. Uh, But unfortunately, a lot of farmers don't know exactly what's going on in their field. And they they kind of take an uh, they may take an aggressive approach, but it may not. It may be a shotgun approach. Um, and they're just trying to, you know, kill everything out there. And so it's really, really, really critical the farmers get out and, and look. And even after, you know, there's no more management um, decisions can be affected this year, it's really important, as you mentioned, to, to get out there and, and, and get that documented so they know what they've got for future years. Because, you know, if, if they've got Phytophthora and they've got a, a, a gene, a resistance gene in, in their soybeans this year, but they still see that uh, disease in their fields, then maybe they need to consider some other resistance sources. That's an easy, an easy application of just knowing uh, what that disease is. And I, back to Dave's original comment, I think the plant disease clinic is one of the best kept, keep, kept secrets on, on, um, at the University of Minnesota. It's a really good resource for folks. We tend to send folks there when we have problems that we can't figure out what else there is going on. And, uh, but I think it should be used more as a routine um, screening thing for farmers to send and, and consultants to send samples to, to have confirmation of what's going on in their fields. Yeah, that's a great point. And, you know, sclerotinia causes a stem rot. Phytophthora causes a stem rot. There's brown stem rot. So there are a lot of different pathogens that can cause similar symptoms. And so, um, yeah, they can, they can provide a definitive answer as to, as to what it is that you likely have. So Seth, you've seen these in the field before. What would you say in terms of a yield depression or yield loss? What, if we have a bad infestation, what are we really looking at in terms of bushels? Are you talking white molds? Yeah, white mold. Yeah. Well, (laughs) again, and you're all striking real nerves with me is that I, uh, white mold is a real significant problem. Uh, but 
as as Megan mentioned, it's very visual. It's very ob. It's it's uh, something that's very obvious to farmers, and so farmers sometimes overestimate the impact of it um, on uh, on their overall operations. I think if you if you if you had farmers rank diseases uh, and yield loss versus uh, plant pathologists, you'd get very different kinds of rankings because uh, farmers might consider SCN down like number six or seven or eight because it's 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 something that we don't see the symptoms of and we don't see damage from and white molds just and sclerotinia is just the opposite of it but we do see it's very spotty david we see areas of fields that are you know in these areas that have had manure histories or near shelter belts where they're really um really uh, sheltered from the wind um, areas that have been planted to really high populations for some reason i mean we can have way over 50% yield losses in those areas. And farmers are really frustrated. They see the yield monitor go way down, um, but they also have to know that there's parts of the fields that probably didn't take a big hit either. So um, it, it's a, I don't wanna minimize the, um, the challenges. It's a really, it's an important disease for me um, that I, I've, I've worked on over the years. And, and uh, but it's also maybe it's just because it's such a formidable foe that um, and that I've partially given up on it that I'm so frustrated with it. Well, we talk about one of the things, and that is foreign material selling and exporting our soybeans, and and, and certainly I I don't I would think you would agree. I mean, we don't really anticipate that it's it's uh, uh, one of the things we want to do is is to sell our soybeans overseas with uh, you know sclerotia and them you know or situations with that. But because you know we think about weed seed, but Certainly, this is a component too, from a foreign material standpoint, is it not? It totally is. This is a big player, and this goes back to that observational thing that makes it so obvious. Is farmers can just look in the grain tank and see um, see them. So um, I think, uh, and it does add to foreign material. And even if it doesn't affect, if it doesn't, even if it doesn't bring those soybeans up uh, to another grade level. Uh, it still affects us from an export standpoint, as you said. It it um, it's more foreign material that makes uh, the soybeans from the region more difficult to sell overseas. So the genetics and uh, and a lot of these things come together. I think the bottom line is there's some job security here. Continue <laughs> for you to work in these particular you know areas as it's it's an important from a quality standpoint, you know export, but also uh, just even a yield situations that are developed, but. It's, it's always been a difficult one, I know, especially mm-hmm. in Minnesota, uh, given the fact that it's obviously, as you talked about earlier, you, grow, you, think you can do things in the growth chamber, but it's, from a soybean breeding standpoint, hard to, quote, recreate on a consistent situation in, in a breeding situation if you're out in a remote area, say, for example. Um, it's, there's, there's no guarantee, so it, it's... It's, it's very difficult. It would be a conundrum for a lot of our soybean breeders. You're right. Yeah, I agree with that. Um, and, you know, something something just to note is that since this resistance is, is partial, um, when you're in your soybean field and you, you've deployed a variety that has resistance, you may still see some white mold develop, but it may not be as severe as it would be otherwise. And you, you, you may not be seeing the yield impact that you would be otherwise. So even using a resistant variety, um, that doesn't mean that you're not going to see any white molds in your field. And so that's something just to, to be aware of. Um, and looking at these these complementary strategies, you know, so um, if you have a, what, what 
you know, research has shown is that you have, if you have a, a, a very resistant variety, um, you may have some white mold development, but you may not need to deploy a fungicide. And so you may have cost savings in that regard. Um, you know, thinking of, of if you have a history of white mold, how you might be able to adjust your plant population or your row spacing. So there are a lot of complementary strategies that folks are working on to be able to preserve yield better. I, I, we are kind of running low on time, but I, uh, one of my favorite questions to ask guests is uh, about what um, excites them the most or what, what, what project or what idea or what, what thing is either going on in their lab or is rolling around in their head that excites them the most. And uh, so far I've, you've talked a lot. I mean, there's been a lot of exciting things. So I, maybe, maybe you've already mentioned some of those, but what, is there any single thing or any theme or any specific thing that you're working on or that you plan to work on that's really exciting that kind of drives you for the future? Yeah, well, you know, speaking of complementary strategies, I am really interested in this architecture work. I think that um, disease escape is maybe an, an underappreciated aspect of of um, being able to to develop varieties that are are resistant to plant diseases. And sclerotinia is so environmentally um, dependent. You know, whether it's thinking about light or or temperature on the soil and, and the um, amount of moisture that's present in the canopy of the soybean. Um, there are so many different environmental factors that are really important. And so I think this idea of combining plant shape with genetic resistance, you know, it's, it's exciting. It could be impactful, um, but we just have to be able to do that in a way that doesn't, doesn't jeopardize yield and the ability of the plants to to set seed and to, to deliver the yield that growers are looking for. But I do think that it's a, it's an interesting, an interesting question. Well, and for sure. And even, even if you find something that has some deleterious effect on yield, or there may be still outlets for it that in specific situations, um, certain management um, 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 schemes that farmers are using or, or elsewhere that that it's it could be useful for so it's it's part of research and and it's really exciting to hear about it so I think we're going to wrap things up here Dave is do, is there anything else you'd like to chat with about I think this is a wonderful opportunity to, you know to talk about some of the things that you're going to be doing and some of the things that you're actually teaching in the plant disease clinic so a whole host of things that it's certainly going to keep you busy uh, in here and you have a very good department in the, in the plant pathology and uh, a lot of fine people with expertise working in there. And, and I think this cross um, communications and working, say, for example, with the soybean breeding uh, will really benefit uh, Minnesota soybean uh, growers as well as uh, other crops as well. So thank you for attending uh, this episode of University of Minnesota Extension CropCast. I'm your host, uh, Dave Nicolai, along with my co-host, uh, Dr. Seth Nave, Extension uh, Soybean Specialist, uh, Thanks for attending, and uh, we'll look forward to the next time, Seth. Sounds good.